HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This episode is brought to you by Talk, the only unified platform for reservations, takeout, and event management. Switch to Talk today to increase your revenue and reach 19 million loyal and engaged guests around the country. For those that have been listening for a while, you know we like to get down to brass tacks. Mostly we have entrepreneurs and restaurateurs that fund their projects through friends and family, or occasionally through small business loans. And then there are the rarity of the venture-backed food service businesses straight out the gate. Not quite straight out the gate, maybe. We're going to learn more about that today. So our guest today is Richard Zaro. Um, Richard has grown up in his family's restaurant, Zaro's Family Bakery, before launching his own concept this past July, so pandemic-born, called Cutlets. Um, Cutlets is a pandemic-born business serving better sandwiches with, you guessed it, fried chicken cutlets. And after just launching a year ago, they are scaling very fast with Four more locations to come in 2021 alone. Welcome and congratulations. Well, the goal is to get two four total, but thanks. Uh, <laughs> two uh, four. You know, quick clarification, but thanks for having <laughs> us. I'm excited to be here. And uh, I just gave I you more work. I'm like, now you're gonna have six. But no, I'm. I already uh, have I'm, way too much I'm on in- my plate. Don't put more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm manifesting for you. All right. For, so four restaurants in 2021, still very impressive. I mean, that's one a quarter. Right. It's pretty, that's a pretty fast clip. Right. Um, so give us, give us the background. Tell us a little bit yeah. about. So let Cutlets. me give you the, uh, the quick story. So Cutwits was a concept that kind of ever since I left uh, Westchester, New York and, and went to college in Indiana and I lived in Colorado for a bit, it was something I always wanted to open. Um, it, I always saw the need to kind of re, you know, to bring the delis that I grew up with. I like to call it the tri-state suburban deli, which is like a typical bodega in New York City, but just with a little bit more Italian influence in it. Um, and these delis were always highlighted by great chicken cutlet. Um, but there was great, you know, egg sandwiches. Although they used boar's head, there was great turkey sandwiches because the bread was so good, and the, you know, all the other ingredients were so good. So I always kind of wanted to recreate those delis, but in a, you know, more simplified. And as I'm spend time in the industry and have, have changed the way that I eat, um, you know, and, and also bring it into a cleaner way. Uh, you, you know, you see, you see all these, you see all these brands that have kind of grown and innovated over the last 10, you know, five to 10 years, they've all kind of have a few things in common. They're, they're branded really well. Um, the menus are extremely simple and, and easy to understand. 
And then they're really transparent about who they source from and why. We kind of wanted to bring those to, to, to bring that, you know, tri-state suburban deli that I talked to to life a little bit. So by these brands, are you, I'm sure you're referring to like other quick service restaurants. Like yeah. Vegan, yeah. Like sorry. Kind of, yeah. Right. No, it's okay. I'm just, I'm just making like clarifying for, for the listeners. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's funny. Cause like one of the things I was thinking about is like, why is this the moment for sandwiches? Cause we've been, uh, we've been fed in bowls recently. So what made you right. feel like it was the moment for bring bread and breaded chicken back? Well, I think that, you know, I've seen, one, it just, again, it was something I always wanted to do. It, it does come from a place of passion, but you've seen those innovations that I've talked about. They're kind of in every bowl imaginable, Mexican, Asian, Mediterranean, um, you know, between Chipotle, Cava, Dos Toros, et cetera. Um, you've seen it in every which way with salads. You haven't really seen it with sandwiches yet. And mm-hmm. I think the places that do try and do a nicer sandwich, it's very chefy. It's very focused. Um, and we, we kind of wanted to be a little bit more general and a little bit, you know, more unfocused, uh, you know, like not specifically Italian, not, not, uh, specifically like, you know, a lot of these places, I, I don't want to use anyone my name, but they're very, very chefy, you know, they're using ingredients that go over the, the regular customer's head. And we, we just wanted to use great ingredients, you know, the everyday ingredients, but a really good version of those. It's funny that you say unfocused because I feel like, aside from the fact that in almost every podcast we talk about focus, <laughs> I, like, I was going to say that I, I love when a restaurant like what you're doing focuses on one thing and does it really well. In the, in the case of the cover, but I know you're using right. it in a in a in a way to say you know not too um, intricate or you know above the diner, but I, I feel like I really like when rather than trying to do you know. 30 different types of things you're, you're going to do one chicken color, make it amazing and then do different variations on your menu, which I think is really smart. Totally. Yeah. We think simplicity is a huge advantage and just the same way you could get a million different combinations from Chipotle out of 10 ingredients. You know, we wanted to do something similar here. So I'm looking at your menu now, you actually have like 20 different, is that, is the menu online accurate for the restaurants? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty accurate. And we do have a bunch of different sauces, but you know, it just came, I wanted to try out a few different sauces and it's, we're only making six to eight in house. The other stuff, it's not too, you know, it's not too hard to keep track, to inventory, to, to keep track of, um, you know, the burden hasn't hit us yet. So, so while it does look a little complicated, it actually is very simplistic behind, behind the scenes. So tell me, and I saw also on your, on your website and your menu, you have like your whole credo and you know what you guys stand for. And one thing was like always the best ingredients and you list off like all of the, the, you know, the farms and where you're sourcing stuff from. So I'm curious how, how you picture scaling that. Um, Well, we actually picked everybody, kind of everyone that we, we went with, we went with, with scale in mind. Um, Mm -hmm. The only thing that the only item we get that that really will have trouble scaling would be our bread, um, and and there's there's options for that. Whether we go local wherever we end up going next, and and as we go on, we just continue to find local bakeries, or we we find a way to, to get it a little bit more mass produced and in a way that still fits with our values. Um, but you know, all the check-in, you know, although we try and do use local places, and let's just say we open in the Midwest instead of using. North country bacon, which is right here in Vermont, we might use new skis, which is in Wisconsin, you know, so we might do things like that. Um, but most places we work with are set up 
that they can really go cross country with us. Um, and you know, it might be, it might be ingredient specific that we change as we grow, but it, as I said, we, we really tried to do everything that we did with, with scale in mind because, because this was never meant to be a one-off shop. So let's talk a little bit about that too. Like how long have you been, you know, working on this? So I know you just launched. Yeah, so let me get into the, uh, yeah. me, and I'm sorry to cut you off. Let me get back no, into, you know, the process of how it started and, and how we got to where we are today. Um, so it was a concept I always wanted to open. I, right after college, I went and lived in uh, Colorado for a couple of years. And when I came back to New York, I started working with my family. It was kind of always what I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and I spent about eight years with my family at Zaro's Family Bakery. And, you know, family businesses are tough. I worked with three of my older cousins, my dad, my uncle. There was a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I kind of, <laughs> yeah, I kind of saw, I was like, look, I, I kind of want to do my own thing. There's too many people here. It's too crowded. To be honest, every decision had to go through eight different channels. You know, it was... It was a little too tough. Family members, yeah. Right, exactly. And it's while it was great and I loved it, and I loved the people at Zaro's. I loved working with my family and I loved every single person that, that was an associate at Zaro's while I was there. I mean, I built a relationship with everybody. I always knew I kind of wanted to go off and do my own thing. Um, and that's where this concept that, again, I always was always in the back of my head. I was always like, I, I want to do that chicken coffee place. And about two, right before the pandemic, I kind of left Zaro's and took a leap and was, was going to start it. Um, and interestingly enough, I'd signed an LOI the week before the pandemic, before like things really went down. Um, and thank God it didn't get further than that. And there was nothing legally binding because I would have been in a much different place. But so the pandemic hit, I kind of, sorry, so you, you know, said to, sorry to interrupt. The LOI was for like a lease on a space. Yeah. Yeah. And I had some investors, you know, pre-pandemic, it was a lot, it was a lot more expensive to open a place. I, I needed to right. raise I needed to raise double what I ended up raising for for Cutwits to get off the ground. And um, the first investors were all friends and family. Yeah, some friends and family. Some, and I was, that's what I was going to get into uh, later was some institutional as well. So I had some of those connections already. Um, but it was a lot of friends and family, or some myself, and then some just industry people that I've connected with over the last eight to ten years. Um, so you said you raised double of what you anticipated. No, no, we were looking to raise double of what we actually ended up raising to get to where we are now. Um, gotcha. So, you know, I was just kind of trying to show, trying to highlight how how much more expensive it was to get things <laughs> done before the pandemic. So the right. pandemic hit, um, I kind of reached out to everyone involved, put everything on pause. I said, look, I'm not opening up a, a fast casual place in, in Midtown New York right now. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see what happens over the next month or two. Um, I had just had a baby, so I was it was a perfect time for me to spend spend some time at home with my daughter and wife. Um, and in about a month and a month and a half later, I said, "All right, why don't I just open it completely myself as a delivery only kitchen um, in Midtown?" You know, I was able to do it completely with my own money. Cost wasn't hard. The barrier to entry wasn't hard, and we we're able to do it pretty quick. So around June. First, I started to get to work on that, and we were open July 28th. That's crazy. Um, so for the delivery only, did you rent ground floor? Did you? Or yeah, so we rented a, a kitchen out of the Sheraton, Point, uh, the, the Sheraton Four Points in Midtown, right in Times Square. Um, it was on 40th Street between 8th and 9th during the heart of the pandemic, and it was it was an interesting place to be going into work every day. And was that available because of the, the low occupancy at the hotel? Yeah, so they had actually, the hotel had turned into a homeless shelter. 
um, oh and the God. kitchen was closed completely. And we found it through a third party uh, company called Kitch, which connects like open kitchen space with people like me or people that, you know, people that need it. Interesting and, resource. I haven't heard yeah, of that one yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's just Yeah. Just K-I-T-C-H. Really cool yeah. company. Um, and they, they actually helped us find the one in Williamsburg too. So we found two kitchens through them. But, uh, you know, it, while, while I don't love, you know, I don't want to be a ghost kitchen concept. It was an awesome way to open and it's, you know, it can be a valuable tool as, as you grow. Tell us a little bit about, so with Kitsch, do you have, you don't sign long-term leases? Is it, are you able to do something short of short-term? How did, so how did that work? Did you just, um, yeah, so it, it, it was a six month, it was a six month lease. It, it kind of, you negotiate it with the manager, you know, in this case, I was negotiating with the manager of the hotel and they were very, very nice, lenient and kind of open to whatever I wanted to do. Um, and being, it was short term, I said, let's do six months and reassess in, in four months. Um, so what ended up happening was we started to show, I mean, listen, we are still in a pandemic in New York City. We started to show pretty good success um, over the first three to four months, enough so that a buddy of mine who is a landlord in New York City had an empty space in one of his buildings. And he said, look, it's fully built out. It's ready to go. Weirdly, the branding was kind of like our branding. Why don't you come <laughs> and just and do another six months stint, just operate out of there for six months. And you could test it as a retail concept. Um, so December 1st, that's exactly what we did. We moved there and we started to show really good success, which then I was like, all right, we need to, we need to start looking for investment and, and thinking about the next steps here. Um, so, so from there, we, we found investors and put together a plan to open a second one in Williamsburg and then another one here as well. And that, that being that was a temporary space, we had to find a more permanent home for that store as well, um, which is where we are today. That's you're you're referring to the Midtown West, the like first Midtown West store. You have to find right. a home for that one right. and a permanent home for Williamsburg. Right, and we're the store on Thirteenth and Third as well. And the okay, and that's the Thirteenth and Third isn't quite open yet, though, right? Or is that right, that's still a couple weeks away. Um, so, you know, so. getting anything open in in New York City is always a little bit tough. Look, you did three in one year. Actually, it sounds more like you did five because you've moved twice. Right, we've moved around two. a lot. I'm I, how, I have how become is, an expert in these store openings. It's, yeah, it's not it's, fun. <laughs> I mean, but it's interesting. Like, the, is the move, like, tell us a little bit about, like, the logistics of the move and how that financially impacts everything. Do you have to, like, shut down? Is, your, is it hard for people to find you again? Or Yeah, so, you, I mean, the first time it kind of went smoother because we weren't as known for going from the kitchen to 900 Broadway. Um, yeah. And then at 900 Broadway, we were there for six months and had, like, built up a really good network of customers within the within the community and, and through our delivery. Um, and when we closed and kind of had to close for a month or three weeks to a month where we just weren't open, we got a lot of messages like, when are you guys coming back? What's going on? Um, you know, even now that we've opened this one, so many people have ordered and been like, oh, I thought it was for the other store. And you can't, you know, there's little things that you got to deal with, but it's just, it, it's part of, it's part of having to move and not opening up in a permanent home from day one. So, mm -hmm. so we, we kind of asked for it. Mm -hmm. And with, um, so 
obviously like you're sort of going back to your original model now at this point with opening the stores, but you've operated these ghost kitchens. So was delivery always, you know, delivery has been hitting people so hard with the high percentages. Was delivery always part of the business plan or is that something that you I mean, sort of shifted to? And then how have you sort of like, this is a multi-tiered question, sorry. And then how have you sort of like padded to make sure that you're not losing all of your margin with the delivery services? Right. Um, well, I'll, I'll answer the second part first is yeah. we've just been in customer acquisition stage. Um, you know, like we look at ourselves as a startup and right. we're going to have to pay some to, to win that customer. So we're, we haven't really done anything to, to really pad the margin, just try and grow our in-store and try and get people to order through our, you know, when people, someone does order through Grubhub, we put an auto flyer that tells them you have $5 off ordering through us. And we try and win that customer through our own website. But, uh, this is what I kind of say about delivery is we've always, you know, even pre-pandemic, we always wanted to really excel in delivery, but it doesn't have to be delivery or dining. You can you can be a great retail experience and, and offer an awesome hospitality experience and also really offer a great delivery experience as well. And that's kind of how we've always looked at it, is we try and we try and hit both both sides of it. Are you guys relying on third party or are you trying to use your totally, own? Totally, totally. Very reliant. Yeah. Oh, for the, for the actual delivery of it, we, we use DoorDash Drive, um, who we felt has been a good partner for us. We, we did start with Relay. And just to be quite quite honest, the finan- the financials were much tougher with Relay. And we yeah. we were able to work something out with DoorDash Drive where we're in a good place. We're in a good place. Any thought at all? Did you guys consider at all of doing your own delivery system? Um, we we thought about it. You know, when I worked with Zara's, I one of one of the jobs that I had there during my seven years was was running our catering department, and we managed that. All delivery was managed in house. Um, it's really just such a mess. It, putting it into the third party. You know, if you get an order downtown, your guy leaves, and then right away you get an order up there. The logistics of it are so tough for especially these smaller orders and one-off sandwich orders. It just doesn't make sense from an operations and cost perspective because you have to you have to have a few, a few guys on staff um, and then insurance. Your insurance boosts up. It it really just makes no sense to to do it in house, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so then, so after you opened basically the second, after you opened the second store, you were like, okay, we're going to go find investors and tell me what that, that journey was like. Did you look for people who had, you know, already invested in quick service or, you know, just really looking at your own network? How was was the thinking there? So it was a mix of, of both. One, we wanted some people who had some experience investing in quick serve and then just experience in the restaurant industry in general. Um, two, I'd already had some connections from, from that investment round that I did earlier, uh, pre pandemic. So we went back to some of those people who had kind of believed in me from the beginning. Um, and I, you know, wanted to kind of give them first chance to get back in. The third thing they were just finding people who one saw the vision, you know, want to grow this. They're not trying to get money out quickly. And they saw the, they're like excited about what we're doing. I can generally, genuinely say that all the investors we brought on are so genuinely excited about the project and about the company and, and, you know, about the product as well. I mean, that everyone loves the product, obviously. Um, so it, it really worked out well for us. You got to see you, you essentially fundraised twice once without anything, 
you know, anything tangible. And then again, with two, right. you know, successful, semi-successful, whatever restaurants at the time, tell us the difference between, you know, the, the response from investors. I mean, it's a lot easier, you know, I have to <laughs> say no a, a few times on the second round and it, we filled up our round in like two weeks after, you know, wow. after reaching out to people. Um, it was just, it, it was a lot easier when you don't have something tangible, you have to sell them on yourself, on, on the vision. And it's a lot harder to get that point across than when, you know, you have a store, you have a product, you have a website, you have a brand, you have, you have all that. Right. Were you already, um, profitable? Were you already at that point for the second round? Um, we had a couple months where we were profitable. Again, we're, we're still in the customer acquisition phase and, right. and, and so much of our business is delivery, especially in Williamsburg, um, where we had a couple months, but everything's going right back into the business. And we're just trying to continue to grow and get more customers. Right. And for, so talk to us a little bit about that. Cause you keep on saying we're in the customer acquisition phase. So how, what are you doing aside from like the third party delivery services? How right. are you, how else are you getting the name out? And, and so, so the two biggest ones would, would be just promotions and then advert advertising through it, through Facebook, Instagram, um, you know, direct, we, we do some direct email marketing as well. And we, we messed around with Google ads and Yelp ads, but what we find the biggest things are, are easy, easy promotions, like $5 off your first order and, and putting those out through email blasts or flyers, which, you know, we, we walk around the areas where we open stores and hand out flyers. Um, and then the biggest thing by far is, 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 uh, Facebook and advertising on Facebook. We've, we've seen some traction from that and and that's kind of where most of our most of that customer acquisition spend goes to so interesting so and you're doing are you doing like all local ads i assume you're just like yeah 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 how is right exactly geotargeting by zip code and you know what what i meant when i brought up the customer acquisition beforehand is there's probably a a world in in the future where we we up our prices on third party you know through Mm -hmm. grubhub doordash uber eats but we've been hesitant to do that just yet because we want to just get that customer. And then hopefully the product wins them back and they go to our website and go through there or they see the flyer and, and, and become, you know, one of our in-house customers that way. Are you able to track, like if somebody comes from like you, you know, you acquired somebody through Grubhub and then you give them this $5 off. Are you able to then track if they've gone to your website and how, like, are you, are you tracking if they're converting that way? So there are some ways to do that and you could do that through like different codes or, you know, there's a couple of yeah. third party companies that help help with that. I'll be honest, as I said earlier, I'm already stretched thin as it is. That's somewhere where we probably <laughs> haven't done a great job of tracking. Um, but we just see it, it. We follow the numbers pretty closely and just like the counts of where people are ordering from. So we see it through there. Were there are there goals? Are there metric goals to the customer acquisition where you will change you know your your path or how are you sort of measuring that right now no it's it's more just in sales and and we just see see the eyeball views on it that it's we know that we're getting enough views we just kind of want to keep imprinting that brand in people's names and and make us like kind of a household name so it's it's, there's not a ton of metrics that are going to give us the satisfaction that we need right now we just kind of want to keep Pounding in, and, and when we can start spending more, we want to spend more. So we just want to keep imprinting that brand in people's names, in no, people's it's, minds. 
essentially, I mean, it's a very e-commerce strategy, which is, you know, sort of our business. So it's, it's interesting that you're going heavy on, on acquisition through Facebook. And I, I think actually local ads are much less expensive than like what we do in like broad target people across the country. Right. So, um, I, I do think it's a, probably a tool that a lot of restaurants don't use enough, um, Totally. And you've seen during the pandemic so many, you know, just because of the ads I get hit with, so many more local places are starting to do it, mm-hmm. which is great. But it's especially, like I said, the way that we open as a delivery only company, we needed to do that. How else were people going to hear about us? So, mm-hmm. it, you know, we, we looked at it as like we are like kind of an e-commerce brand to begin with. Um, and we've mm-hmm. kind of kept a little bit of that mentality as we've grown. And as you guys are now sort of going back to this brick and mortar strategy, I assume like originally it sounded like business districts were really important to you, right? Like you were like originally going to looking at Midtown West and then you're like, JK, nobody's in Midtown West right now because of the pandemic. How are you sort of thinking about your, your retail strategy as things are opening back up and changing and people's patterns and behavior have changed? Well, albeit we did open a store in Midtown West, um, we right. do kind of want to be more in neighborhoody places. I mean, we are a perfect office lunch, so we did want to cater to that crowd. And we think in the long term, maybe not, you know, July 2021, we're not going to blow it out of the water. But in the long term, we really think we're going to blow it out of the water in this location. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to be in places like our 13th and 3rd stores in the East Village, which, again, during the pandemic stayed kind of busy. Williamsburg, which is neighborhoody and wasn't as affected much. And then we really want to open up in the Upper East Side as well, um, which is the same things. It hits it close to a park. It has it has a ton of residential area. It has schools. It has hospitals. You know, those are the type of things that we're looking for. And then we just didn't want to overcrowd each other's delivery radiuses because we also see that we can be a delivery hub for the surrounding areas. So we didn't want to open up one in Flatiron, one in East Village, one in Midtown West. We kind of wanted. We only had so many bullets to spend. We we try to want it to spread it out and try and hit as much of the city as we could. And your and this um, this round of capital that you raised will get you how many stores? You think, or are you? So we thought of- four or five. Um, now, you know, just the the nature of the nature of construction in New York City um, has kind of beat us down a little bit, and now it's it'll probably be three and hopefully four. Um, but we might need a small, uh, we might need a small supplemental round of funding to get the fourth complete just because we don't want to leave ourselves without any operating room or sorry, wiggle room with operating costs. Um, but you know, as, as I'm learning, every construction build out goes over. So it's, it's it, we're, right now we're, we're stopping at three to just get these three open and running. And then we're going to reevaluate with number four. Have you found deals in light of uh, a post-pandemic world on, on rent? Totally, totally, but they're gone. But the three leases that we signed, um, which have all been signed in the last three months, we found really, you know, we're very happy with with how they, they stand in the market. Um, but now, as I've continued to look, like Upper East Side, we were looking for, for months. The, you know, it, it's tough. There's certain pockets where it's where it's really tough. And right. as the cities come back, everything's now jumping again. So we're, I think we're, the neighborhoods too are, as we, as as far as we've seen, the neighborhoody, the, like the more dense neighborhoods with with people uh, and apartments and such, have done did better through the pandemic than obviously the the business districts. So I think they probably had less less to give in that sense. But totally, um, totally. Did you guys give any thought to you know? 
speeding up your expansion to try and secure those those rental deals or we did but there? it's you know one we only have i i only to be fair I, you know i just only have so much manpower right now <laughs> right. and we didn't we didn't really you know in hindsight maybe we could have looked to raise more money um but we wanted we also wanted to be we wanted to be smart about expanding. We, we want to make sure that our product stays consistent and our hospitality experience stays consistent. Um, and what, I was worried about opening four or five at once, which, you know, it's kind of been proven true, just opening this one and getting the other one open. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, Speaking of manpower, when you took the first round of investment, were there strategic partners, hires that you brought in that, that your investors were asking for or, can you tell us a little bit about that? Honestly, no, because every dollar we had, we kind of wanted to put towards new stores. Okay. Um, you know, like I said, we only, we, we raised about 60% of what we were looking to raise before the pandemic to open one store. Um, so we were pretty happy to be able to even three, maybe four. Um, it's still, you know, the value has totally been there, but it's, it's, we're, we're rugged and lean and mean, you know, we're not fat, we're not fat with cash and we haven't operated like that. But I think it's, I mean, four stores and what is a lot in one year. Is, is that, was that part of the strategy? You just sort of wanted to like have you do everything at once. So for like a branding perspective or, well, you know. It was just also now, you know, we had one, we had some success. We wanted to put pedal to the metal, but right. it was also, as, as Alex mentioned earlier, we just wanted to take advantage of the deals. There was, there was, it was a great time to be looking and I'm, I'm always going to be long on New York city. You know, I was never yeah. one of these. <laughs> New York is dead people. I, New York I mean, or nowhere. I love it. <laughs> right. You know, I, I stayed here throughout the pandemic. I, I'm a, New York survived much worse. You know, I, I wasn't worried about New York coming back. So I wanted to make sure that we scooped up at least a few deals that we're, we're really excited about. And we're, you know, we're looking at years three, four, and five. We're really excited about those years um, mm-hmm. in these deals. Cause we, we did percentage rent for the first two years on, on every, both of our leases except Williamsburg. So it's wow. we're kind of just tied to what we do. We want just wanted to have a safe out and and if things started slow and their things come back, like the Delta variants coming back, we're pretty protected. Um but years three, four and five, we're really excited about that and the numbers that we locked in. So I'm- but even the fact that you got a percentage rent deal, I mean that was like pre pandemic percentage rent deals were like unheard of unless you were in a football. Right. You know, so right. that's like, I, well, you know, I think landlords, at least smarter ones, see where where that that's where kind of the industry is heading a little bit, at least for the next year or two. Are you thinking already about? I mean, you're obviously thinking long term, just from everything we're hearing. So, are you thinking about like other markets outside of New York City or totally? To- totally. As I said, this was always meant to be outside of New York. I just know New York. I know how to operate in New York. I know vendors in New York, so it, was the, it made the most sense for us to start here. And if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? Yes. Um, but we want to be in college towns and other med- major media markets, you know, places like D.C., Boston, Miami, Atlanta, L.A., Chicago. Um, we see a huge opportunity to, you know, I, this is how I kind of say, we want to compete with the Jimmy Johns, the Pop Bellies, the Jersey Mikes in the world. We think we think there's a huge chance to start like a better sandwich revolution. Um, and we kind of want to be at the forefront of that. Is your thought that you is your ideal world to grow this thing all the way by yourself, or is it to grow it to a point and um, sell it to one of those other guys? 
I, I, I you know, being growing up in a family business, there's some, there's a part of me that always, not that this is going to be a family business like, like Zara's was, but there was always a part of me that liked having that. Um, I, I've never really thought about it. And, uh, you know, I don't want to sell. I'll never say never. That's not really in my thoughts. We want to continue to grow ourselves, whether it's through our own stores that we keep opening or we maybe develop a franchise model. Um, but right now, that's that's our only focus is just growth. Come on, Shake Shack IPO. That's like your ticket to be cut. You know, if I'm ever talking about that, I'll be very lucky. So, God bless. I know, you know right? Um, that's you. how I feel. Is let me get to that stage, and I'll feel I'll be very happy and lucky just to just to be there. So, yeah, no, I, I love it. I think it is a good idea. It is true. It's like there's a lot of the. the I think this, you're you're on to something with the sandwich market being disrupted because nobody has touched it and. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I wanted to eat at a Jimmy John's. No offense. To well, and, Jones, and actually, I had Jimmy John's this weekend because I, I went back to, to Bloomington, Indiana with some friends for a bachelor party. And it was really good, but it's not something you want to eat two yeah, or three are, times a week. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's the era, the last wave is like the Jimmy John's and the Panera. And how long right. ago, when, when did those guys start? I'm sure you know. Right, exactly. I, I don't know, but they're old. I mean, Jimmy John's, I think, was in the 80s, 82, yeah. something like that. Right. But they're all old. You know, they're all right. they're all very old and dated. And the other part of it, which we kind of maybe lucked into, is there's been like this chicken sandwich revolution. Everyone loves fried chicken. Right. And in my opinion, one chicken cutlet's the best way to do fried chicken. It's not known outside of New York. You know, in, in Chicago, they don't know what chicken cutlet is. Um, <laughs> really? It is true. You know, it there might like be small places. Yeah. Right. So that, you know, or it's like a, it, it's an Italian thing. So you see it a little bit in Philly and Boston as well. Right. But it's not, it's not like a mainstream thing, chicken calling. No, I remember uh, when I went to Tulane, I was from the South and all of my friends who grew up in like Long Island and Westchester, we'd be like hung over, like stoned. And they'd be like, I just right. want a chicken cutlet sandwich from the deli and there's <laughs> nothing like it. And everybody would be like, and I'm like, what the hell is a chicken cutlet? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's take a little break. Um, and b- before we do, we want to talk a little bit about our, uh, our host network, uh, Heritage Radio Network is um, starting their summer membership drive. Jen? Yeah. So um, if you guys love getting business advice and listening to our show, I don't know if you know this, but Heritage Radio Network is 100% member supported. So that means folks like you who are listeners contribute each month to help um, keep us on the air. So if you can show some support, go to the um, HRN website and donate even $1 helps us. It's uh, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. And there you can sign up to be a member. And we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Talk. We're excited to partner with Talk, the only unified platform for reservations, takeout, and event management. Talk is home to over 7,000 restaurants, bars, wineries, breweries, including Frame. Frame is no ordinary restaurant. It's located just outside of Detroit in Hazel Park, Michigan, and it's a revolving creative hub that hosts all kinds of collaborative events. There's chef residencies, culinary workshops, cocktail pairings, you name it, and they do it all with talk. Ryan Waldman, the director of experiences and programming at Frame, says that talk enables them to do ticketed presale events. Without talk, he doesn't know how they would run their back end. Talk has been crucial in developing Frame's model of vision and collaboration. 
To learn more about how you can unleash your culinary creativity and sell more with talk, visit exploretalk.com slash join. That's explore, T-O-C-K dot com slash join. Okay, so we're back with Richard Zero um, of Cutlets, and we've had a really interesting discussion about scaling, but now let's, uh, should we hop into some lightning round, Al? Sounds good. Um, I'll go first. What is your favorite cutlet situation on the cutlets menu? So the number one is number one for a reason, which was like my favorite sandwich growing up, which was chicken cutlet, bacon, cheddar, and Russian. But so here it's chicken cutlet, bacon, cheddar, and special sauce. So we make the special sauce in-house and the bacon we buy in a slab and cut really thick. Like it's not the regular bacon you're getting at a deli. It's almost like steakhouse bacon. It's fantastic. Was there one place that you got this growing up? Or this um, was just like the order wherever you went? My, uh, there, was, there was two places. There was one in, uh, I forget the town name. I forget the exact name. It was called the Cluck in Russian. And I'm, <laughs> I'm blanking on, oh, Cameron's was the deli. But, uh, you know, my hometown deli in Anthony's was where I would get this most of the time because it was just right in town. And it was a great sandwich. Is Anthony's still around? Yeah, yeah, Anthony's still around. Do you, do you and Anthony chit-chat sandwiches? No, we haven't. But another place <laughs> I have, Casa d'Italia. I've talked with them, and, which was another one of my inspirations you know, from growing up. And, and I love those guys. And what about what's your most ordered menu item? Probably a make-your-own-chicken cutlet. Really? And then the number one would be after, yeah. That's interesting. interesting. What is, uh, I'm sure as a quick service that you probably measure ticket times and stuff like that more than anyone else does. Is that, did I make a, a poor assumption? And, and does the, yeah, no, we definitely do. Does the like make your own sandwich, screw that situation up. So totally. And it, it adds another element to it where, where we have a create your own salad too, but it's just such a necessary thing that, that we need to do. Um, right. And it, there has been some issues from that. You know, when we get like a 10 person order and they're all 10 person, create your own and no walk-in <laughs> comes in and, you know, it just gets stuck behind there. You know, there's there's issues, but that's just part of the operations and the kinks that, that we need to just keep smoothing over, and we're, we're getting there. Any customer make your own sandwiches that have made it to the menu? No, 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 no. additions. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hard no. <laughs> I like it. Don't try to submit something for the menu. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is your, this is a newer question for, that we're asking everybody, what is the item that has the best uh, food cost percentage for you? Um, the best margin? Egg sandwich, I'm guessing, maybe? You have an egg sandwich, right? Yeah, yeah, but our bacon's pretty expensive. Oh, okay. Um, I would say to make your own chicken cutlet, probably. Really? Yeah. All right. Or actually, make your own eggplant cutlet. Make your own uh, eggplant cutlet. That's the best one. Yeah. What about what's been your best business resource, um, either now or even back to Friends. Zara's days? Friends. Friends. Yeah. Um, you work. know, being able to right, being able to hit up my friend who's a lawyer for that, you know, and just get information because there's so many, you know, starting your own thing. There's so many things you run into that you just have no idea. Um, whether it's starting the investment, right? You know, like putting together the operating agreement or. You know, the list goes on and on. So I would say just friends. You know, your, your refrigerator breaks down. You need to call somebody to come pick it up. You have to, you know, you rely on, you rely on people you know to, to help out. 
got one last question, um, just for my own personal curiosity. And as far as your chicken alternatives go, which which one does better, the the simulate chicken or the eggplant? Eggplant, definitely. Cool. Simulates no. Good to know. Yeah. What did did you feel like you had to put a like a full chicken alternative on there as opposed to a vegetable? Were people asking for it, or was it just something you wanted to do? You know, being like a more modern deli, it was it was something that we we wanted to do. And did, how did you like pick which alternative chicken to use? There's so many these days. I feel like. Um, I you know, Simulate was one of the first ones that that I tried, and I, I I like those guys over there. I like them. I think the they have a patty that that is most closely resembles a chicken cutlet. Um, you know, a lot of the other ones like Daring, they only have like little strips, so it just made most sense for us. Cool. Um, all right. Last lightning round question. What are you most hopeful for as, um, for post pandemic as things are reopening? I am most hopeful for Midtown to get rocking and rolling again. <laughs> mm-hmm. When do you think that's going to happen fall? I did, but this LA stuff's a little, uh, a little scary, you know, with the Delta variant. Um, so we'll see. I, I don't know. I think it might, we, we might be in for, for another long couple months. Don't say but that. I don't know. Don't, you know, don't take that. my advice. Hey, listen, I'm, I hope you're not. wrong. I'm, I'm, yeah. I think we're I'd be we very, are. very happy to be wrong. Yeah. I don't know. I like, I, I don't know. I'm like, no, come on, New York. We got this. I know. Um, you know what? We're doing well. We're doing really well. So yeah, you're right. I'm wrong. No. <laughs> LA is just not as good as New York. I also think, well, yeah, I think we've had, I think our vaccination rates are, are pretty strong. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, they are. That. Um, cool. All right. We um, like to round out with some opening soon announcements. So I know you have an opening coming up. Do you have a date yet for 13th Street? Okay. We do. We do not um, just because we're at the behest of some New York City agencies and, and we don't want to put a date on them. Mm-hmm. We tried putting a date on them for a while and it's, it's backfired. So right now we don't, but we're really hopeful it's in the next 10 to 14 days. Wow. Okay. That's soon. Um, any other friends or any other places you've been recently or know who are reopening soon? Um, my out? buddies at Inday are, are reopening their Madison store soon. And oh, uh, yeah, we'll be happy to see them back. Yes. We love Inday. Awesome. Um, well, CC just opened in East Hampton, who's a customer, and it looks really, really gorgeous for anybody who is lucky enough to be out there anytime soon. Um, right. And then our old friend Gerardo um, Gonzalez is back for four nights only this month at Niche Niche. So um, he was the chef over at El Rey and Mallory side and our neighbor and is just insanely talented and has moved to the Caribbean. So if you're around, go check. Out. Two places right. I would love to be around, Hamptons yeah. and the Caribbean. There you, I mean, there you go. Um, Al, you want to? Yeah, um, one last thing before we close out. I wanted to, you had mentioned the resource Kitsch, um, and I, I had not heard of it. I think it's a good resource. It's uh, If you go to use, usekitsch.com, you can figure find that one out. Um, yes, yeah, sorry, so use Kitsch. Your, I apologize, Dan. No worries. Just want to give them some people in the right direction. Um, Dan Hunter is the, uh, the guy who started Catch, so I'm apologizing to him for not getting the right. <laughs> tell, us, um, tell us how we find Cutlets online, on social. Yeah, so cutlets.co is our website. 
And our social is Cutlet Sandwich Co. C U T L E T S S A N D W I C H C O. Um, and you'll see some beautiful looking sandwiches on both of those platforms. Cool. And we are at We Are Opening Soon and at Tillet NYC. Thanks, guys. Thank hey, guys, you. I appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, so fun. Thank you. Thank you. Opening Soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.